Morning, friends. Good to see you today. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word uh, to Mark chapter 8. <clears throat> Mark chapter 8. And I, I do want to encourage you to uh, contribute to the Gideons if you're able. Some of you prefer to give online and you can... Uh, find the Gideon's website listed in your bulletin insert, and you can contribute that way too, as I know some of you would rather do. Mark 8, verses 1 through 21. It sounds like a huge passage for me to try to get through in one morning, and I know you're skeptical, given my previous record, but I really truly believe that we can do it, and we won't be here till, you know, 1 o'clock either. Uh, so... Let me read our passage first, just so we can put it all together and see it laid out there, and then we'll uh, begin to uh, study what's in it. Uh, Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21, hear the word of the Lord. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciple answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? This is God's holy and 
inerrant and authoritative word. And I say that not because it's a cliche and I just say it every week. I say that because I want to remind you that these are the very words of God. God breathed these words out. It's not just a man's account. These are God's words. And the very original manuscripts were flawless, had no error. And that this is authoritative for our lives. We don't sit in, sit over it. This sits over us because they are, after all, God's words. That's why I say that, to remind us every time we sit down that we're listening to God speak to us. So let me pray for us this morning. Let me ask for the Lord's help for all of us as we look into this familiar passage to many of us. And so, Jesus, we cry out to you now as we come to your word. Uh, Indeed, some of us have been hearing this story since we were children. And so, for that reason, uh, we are on very dangerous ground. In fact, it's the same ground the disciples are on and the Pharisees are on. We have seen and heard it all before. So, for those of us who would be tempted to think we know it all or think we've got this under our belts already, I pray that you would uh, just jar us loose from those thoughts and give us fresh ears to hear your truth and uh, remove the scales from our eyes that we can see your glory on display here yet again. And help us, Christ Jesus, Uh, send your spirit to quicken us yet again. Uh, help me, Lord, my voice and my and Christ Jesus, we ask this all in your name. Amen. So which one am I using, Dean? Podium. Podium. All right. The one I'm touching. <laughs> There's a joke going on here. It says, do not, you saw it, do not touch the microphone. So anyway, that's my rebellious nature coming out. (laughs) Well, two men were walking down the road discussing the disturbing events that had taken place in Jerusalem. And at a crossroads, they were joined by a stranger traveling the same direction. And the stranger said, I overheard part of your conversation just now. What news do you bring from Jerusalem? What news? Friend, where have you been that you haven't heard the news from Jerusalem? Don't you know about Jesus of Nazareth? He taught and did glorious things. But now the one talking paused and both men hung their heads. And it seemed a wave of sadness washed over them. We were hoping that he was our Messiah and would redeem Israel. But our leaders condemned him and put him to death on a cross. That was three days ago. And this morning, some of the women said, women said they went to this to his tomb and found it empty. Some of our other friends went too and confirmed their story. His body was gone. And then the stranger said this, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? 
O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. That about describes the people in our passage today. Uh, foolish ones and slow to believe. And unfortunately, uh, sometimes those words describe you and me too. Slow to believe. This doesn't have to be true of us. Even though we often are, we don't have to be slow to believe. We don't have to be hesitant to put our full trust and confidence in Christ and the promises of his word. And this is what I want you to see today from our passage. You don't have to be slow to believe. You can put your full trust and confidence in Christ and the promises of his word. And I hope to show you uh, this uh, today by pointing out three items from our passage. There are three items in these verses I want you to see. The first item I want you to see is a surplus. There's a large surplus of bread after Jesus feeds 4,000 people. Let me mention three things in connection with this surplus. First, as he usually does, Mark gives us the setting. Uh, he describes the scene for us. And again, I'd point you back to verse one, uh, verse one of chapter eight. It begins in those days. And that little phrase connects this event with what's been going on before. And in particular, this event is connected to uh, the time when Jesus healed uh, the woman's young daughter, or not healed her, but freed her from demon possession. That was back in seven. Uh, we saw that week that Jesus had left uh, this light gray, shoot, I can't turn around and talk, this light gray <laughs> region of, of Galilee, and now for only the second time, he's left that region uh, and traveled up to the north uh, entire where this event takes place. Um, in the area of Tyre, this is where Jesus encountered this desperate mother. And I, I just want you to look at their exchange uh, in Mark 7, 26. And just note the theme of bread that comes up here. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the daughter's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And that might strike you as offensive, and if it does, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that message where I explain uh, why Jesus says those things. But the theme of bread comes up here. And what we see in the feeding of the 4,000 is more of these crumbs being offered to the Gentiles, to non-Jewish people. Jesus is now on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the dark gray. Over here, you can see the beginning of the Decapolis, uh, of that, the name of that region. Uh, and verse one goes on to say, uh, it, as he has been teaching, it says, in those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, 
I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from afar. I just want you to take note of how enthusiastic this crowd is. They've been uh, devouring the life-giving word from Jesus, but apparently nothing else. Uh, they had no food, and yet they stay for three days without complaining. They remained without complaining because their souls were being fed by the truth. They were hearing things from the lips of Christ that they'd never heard before. And Jesus doesn't want to send them away hungry, fearing that they might collapse on the way. This is our setting. Uh, this is what's going on when these events happen. Jesus has been teaching a large crowd for three days who've gone without food the whole time. There's another thing I don't want to mention to you in uh, this surplus, and that is the shortage. There's not enough food for the crowd that's gathered. Notice verse 4, and his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? They've experienced this once before. And they did the math, and they reached the conclusion that there's not nearly enough bread to be found in this desolate place, this wilderness, this uninhabited region. There's, Lord, there's not a grocery store for miles. There's no place for them to buy bread. And even if there was a market, they wouldn't have enough bread for a crowd this size. So I hope this begins to sink into you. Just pause and think about their conclusion for a moment. There's something seriously wrong with their conclusion. Have you picked it up? The problem is that they haven't even taken Jesus into consideration. And their conclusion reflects the belief that there's nothing he can do. They're certainly not expecting a miracle. They could have, they could have said, well, Lord, we have nothing and you're going to have to do this again. But they don't. Lord, there's, there's not enough bread in this desolate place. How could they think this? They'd watched Jesus feed 5,000. They've watched Jesus walk on water. How could they come to this conclusion? It's painfully obvious. They have not learned from their experience, have they? They were slow to believe. Well, before we judge them too harshly, don't you and I do the same thing? Having seen the Lord provide for us time after time, having seen him deliver us through difficult circumstances again and again, why do we worry? Why do we become anxious when the next thing comes along? You and I also have trouble learning from our experience 
And much like the 12, you and I too are slow to believe. And we praise the Lord out of one side of our mouth. Thank you, Father, for answered prayer. And then we turn to Monday. Oh, my word, what are we going to do? And we do it like clockwork. Well, I do anyway. Uh, I include myself in this, and I think there's a couple of you out there who, who do that too. This is the shortage. There's not enough bread again. And then the third thing I want you to see here in this surplus is the surplus that comes. Jesus feeds this crowd and has an abundance left over. Look at verse 5 now. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And that's better than last time. But it's still a, a ridiculously little amount compared to the size of this crowd. Verse 6 goes on. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. With this feeding, uh, Jesus offers the Gentiles the same thing that he has offered to the Jews, to be fed, not only by his teaching, but also to be fed by his miraculous power. And look at how much is left over. Look at the surplus in verse 8. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. The baskets that he describes here, uh, they're not the same kind of baskets used to gather the leftovers at the feeding of the 5,000. These are large baskets. You could call them hampers. These baskets were large enough to carry someone. In fact, this is the kind of basket that Paul's friends used to help him to escape from the city of Damascus in Acts chapter 9. They were that big. And there are uh, uh, these huge baskets, uh, seven baskets left over of scraps. Imagine how much Tupperware that would take to put away. I mean, this is no Thanksgiving meal here. This is enormous. Why do we care how big the baskets are? What's the significance of, of the leftovers in these baskets? It shows us in a pretty dramatic way that Jesus is capable of providing far more than enough. Far more than enough. Consider this from Ephesians 3. Now to him who was able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or even think. Another version says all that we ask or imagine. I can imagine a lot. Well, you can't imagine as much as Christ can provide. And this from 2 Corinthians. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, or every kind of grace abound to you, so that having 
all sufficiency, in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. Paul uses that in the context of giving, but it goes beyond giving. He's talking about them having enough to contribute to the, the hungry saints in Jerusalem, but it stretches beyond that to all things, as it says. Christ is capable of providing far more than enough, far more than enough. There was a magazine fulfillment center in Chicago. They send out renewal and expiration notices for hundreds of magazines. And one day this company's computer malfunctioned and a rancher in Powder Bluff, Colorado got 9,734 separate mailings informing him that his subscription to National Geographic had expired. He dropped what he was doing, uh, drove 10 miles to the nearest post office where he sent money for a renewal along with a note that said, I give up, send me your magazine. And just like National Geographic, oh, Christ can supply far more than is necessary, immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. This is the surplus. That's the first item I want you to see in our account this morning. A large surplus of bread after feeding 4,000 people but I want to move on to a second item and show that to you. The second item is a sign. And we see this, uh, this is what the hardened Pharisees demand. They want a definitive sign from heaven. Look at verse 10 now. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. That unfortunately is, isn't mentioned by anyone in the ancient world. Matthew's account of this event says that they uh, sailed from Decapolis to the region of Magadan, which is another name for Magdala. And we do know that Magdala is located on the western side of the Sea of Galilee right here. So they've crossed from somewhere over here across the Sea of Galilee to uh, Magdala. Uh, and as soon as Jesus and the 12 arrive, they're met by some Pharisees who have come looking for a fight. Then this is uh, in verse 11, the Pharisees came, began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. They're not, they're not curious. They are intentionally there to, to pick a fight with Christ. They're looking for a way to discredit him. And what they're demanding is a sign that would verify his claims. This is not just another miracle. This is, uh, the Old Testament describes a sign as a very public event that confirmed someone's claim and authenticated them. That's what they're looking for. A very public sign uh, from heaven that will either authenticate or discredit uh, Jesus. Uh, um, for example, uh, the 10 plagues in uh, Egypt were public signs that proved the claims of Moses before Pharaoh. 
And fire from heaven was a public sign that proved the claims of Elijah um, on Mount Carmel. That's the scale they're, they're wanting, something along that scale, that, that size. What they most likely want is for him, he, he claims to be the Messiah, what they probably want is the immediate overthrow of the Romans and to be delivered from captivity. That's all. And look at Christ's reply in verse 12. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. And that describes a deep groan, a heavy sigh. And he is distressed at their unresponsiveness. And he goes on, it goes on. And said, why does this generation seek a sign? And when he says this generation, he is connecting the Pharisees and those like them with the stubborn and disobedient generation of Israelites in the desert. Psalm 95 speaks of them like this. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. And so when Jesus says this generation, it's an allusion back to that generation and how stubborn and onerous they were. It's not a good comparison. These Pharisees are slow to believe, stubbornly slow to believe. And the very ending of verse 12 says, Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Truly I say to you is part of an oath. Uh, More literally it says, If a sign will be given to this generation, dot, dot, dot. The other half is omitted. And so an oath formula usually goes, "If, If this happens, then may God do so to me and even worse. And so we would expect if a sign is given to this generation, may I be accursed of God or something like that. We do something sometimes uh, with our children. Some parents at least do something like that. And on a long trip, you might hear a parent say, if I hear one more noise from that back seat. And you don't finish the sentence. And you leave it hanging so that those in the back seat are left to imagine all the horrible things that will befall them if they make one more noise. That's the kind of thing, except this is, this is of course, far more serious than that. This reveals how angry Christ is. And, and it reveals that he will prevent another sign from happening. They've already seen miracles that testified to his identity and authority as God's anointed king. They've already seen enough proof. And Jesus says no further sign will be given to them except his resurrection from the dead. And then finally, Jesus deliberately disengages from them. Look at verse 13. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, he left them could refer to him just physically departing. 
That's one way you can translate this. One scholar says, no, he left them can also mean to disengage from someone, to depart from someone. The idea is uh, Jesus would be saying, I am through with them. I am done with them, as you and I sometimes say when people frustrate us beyond, beyond measure. This is the idea. He, he is deliberately disengaging from the Pharisees in their stubborn slowness to believe. No further discussion with them will be held. Say, listen, you wouldn't be happen to be wearing out Jesus with your stubbornness, would you? Be a bad thing to try the Lord's patience. For those who have put their faith in Christ's atoning death, you can never wear him out. Let me make that clear. If you've trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord, you can't wear him out. He will never be done with you. Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave you or forsake you. But those who are stubbornly slow to believe, like these Pharisees, you can reach a limit. Romans describes it. Paul says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So friend, don't mistake his delay as disinterest. He is paying attention. And you can reach the point where he disengages and leaves you alone. So the second item that we find in our passage is a sign from those Pharisees stubbornly slow to believe. There's one more item, the last item that we find is a shortage, yet another shortage. And this occurs with the disciples again. Uh, they're either on the Sea of Galilee or they've reached their destination. It's not clear exactly where they are. Let me mention two things about this shortage to you. There is, to begin with, a lack of provisions. The 12 failed to bring enough bread on their journey. So let me begin again at verse 13. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. They wind up in the city of Bethsaida, so that is presumably where they're headed or where they have already landed. It's way up here. Oh, it's not there at all. It's uh, way up here on the northern side of the lake. You can see right below the word Capernaum there. Um, the disciples, though, they have failed to pack a very important item for their trip. They have failed to bring enough bread for 13 people. They've only got one loaf. And whether they're 
uh, still in the boat or whether they've arrived, Jesus seems to still be thinking about the Pharisees in their, their conversation. And so Jesus says this to his men in verse 15. And he cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Leaven was a piece of bread dough uh, that was kept back from what you were baking. And this lump that you held back, it was allowed to ferment. And they sometimes added things to cause it to ferment. And they would use this in the next week's batch of dough. But leaven could also be dangerous. It could become tainted and it could become a health hazard. And tainted leaven could spread poison throughout a whole batch of dough. It was also used as a figure of speech to describe how quickly and widely something spread, both good and bad. One of Paul's favorite expressions was, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? I think he says that three times in his letters. This time, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, it's a reference to sexual immorality in the church. You need to deal with it because it spreads like leaven. And Jesus is using leaven as a figure of speech also here in verse 15. He doesn't identify exactly what he's referring to, but only that the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod is tainted and toxic. He seems to be referring to obstinate refusal to believe, no matter how much evidence there is. And so this is a warning to the 12 about being stubbornly slow to believe like the Pharisees were. And you know the disciples, well, they pick, on it right, pick up on this right away, don't they? No, they don't. It completely goes over their head. They think he's talking about real leaven and real bread. And it says in verse 16, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Uh, this is now the third time they've, they've come short in the bread department. The first was when 5,000 were fed. The second was when 4,000 were fed. And here for the third time, their provisions come up short. There's a lack of provisions. They don't pack enough bread. But then as we go further, there's also, whoops, there is also a lack of perception. He, Jesus goes on to expose their failure <clears throat> to understand spiritual truth. And he makes this um, exposure in verse 17. It begins, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? As if to say, no conversation about bread should be necessary. I mean, guys, why are you having this conversation? And he goes on to say, that their discussion about the lack of bread reflects a glaring lack of spiritual possession, uh, perception. Verse 17 goes on. Do you not yet perceive or understand? 
Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? That's language borrowed from Isaiah chapter 6. It's the same language Jesus used to describe those outside the kingdom back in chapter 4. And now Jesus is telling his own men, you're demonstrating the same kind of uh, dullness that unbelievers have. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. And further, their memories are painfully short. Jesus exposes some kind of spiritual dementia, if you will, at this point. They can't remember even recent events. And at the end of verse 15, uh, Jesus says, And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. He refers to those two events as crucial events in their understanding, as if those two events should have settled everything for them. Uh, did I provide bread for 5,000 people? And we noted it was probably closer to 10,000. Yes, I did. More than enough. You picked up the leftovers. Did I provide bread for 4,000 people? Yes, again, I provided immeasurably more than anyone could ask or imagine. So tell me, why do you need to have a conversation about your lack of bread? Is it because you think that I can't provide it? you see how badly they've missed it? They cannot put two and two together, spiritually speaking. I love the way this scholar sums it up. They can recall the numbers easily enough, but they cannot see past them to recognize that they have a bread maker with them in the boat. The scene is almost comical. Jesus has fed 9,000 people with next to nothing. Though the 12 have had a ringside seat at both events, it has apparently slipped their minds and they come off as dunderheads, worrying about not having enough to fix lunch for 13. It's ludicrous, isn't it? It is a real head-slapping moment. And, oh, our patient Lord, patient with those men and patient with us and patient with us. Lord, I forgot to bring bread. Lord, I don't have enough money for this car repair. What now? And Jesus concludes in verse 21. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Don't you understand? Don't you grasp who I am? Don't you understand what I can do? Are you slow to believe too? 
Jesus could have explained it like this with words adapted from Paul. He could have said to them, I am the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by me, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through me and for me. And I am before all things, and in me all things hold together. And I'm the head of the body, the church. I'm the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything I might be preeminent. For in me all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through me to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross." my cross, which is still in the future. Don't you understand who I am? You're worried about bread with me here? So do you understand? We don't have to be slow to believe. We can rest our full weight on Christ. And you and I can put our complete trust in him and his word. And here are four reasons why. First, because his word tells us, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. More than you think. Can he provide for you? Oh, yes. More than enough. That's reason one. The second reason God is able to make all grace, every kind of grace, abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Again, this is about giving. He can supply funds for you to donate to the saints in Jerusalem we understand it in context that that's the primary reference and application, but it goes beyond giving to all things. You don't have to be slow to believe because Christ is able to give you all the grace you need for whatever you encounter. Is there a relationship that's going sideways and you need to have a conversation with someone? that you're nervous about. Well, he has promised, uh, he's able to make every kind of grace abound to you so that you will have be sufficient to have that conversation. Whether it's with a relative, a parent, a child, a boss. The third reason is because his word also tells us this, 
My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Again, also in the context of giving. The saints in Philippi have supplied Paul's need, and he is saying, because you've cared for me and my need, my God will supply every need of yours. And so this, this third reason implies that our, our finances are surrendered to Christ. And when they are, my God will supply every need of yours. The fourth reason is this one. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. I've told you this uh, before, and I apologize for repeating it. This first came home to me when I was trying to prepare a spaghetti dinner for, uh, for our high school students to host um, for the people of our church. It was a fundraiser. We were trying to earn money to go, attend a conference that we went to every year. We were trying to raise twice as much as we ever had. And I was really nervous because if the money didn't come in, I mean, what, was, what were we going to do? And uh, I prayed and sought the Lord and wow. Well, guess what? More than enough came in. And then I read this verse, ah, Lord God. It is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. I felt like the Lord was saying to me, no voice, okay? You think I can't handle a spaghetti dinner? Do you think after the heavens and the earth that a spaghetti dinner is really hard for me, Rob? I was chagrined, embarrassed. Oh, wow. It's like Jesus. I've just fed 9,000 people, guys. Do you think I can't handle lunch for 13? These are why, these four verses or reasons why you don't have to be slow to believe. Four reasons why you can put your full trust in Christ and his word. I created the world. You think I can't handle a transmission? Except BMWs. I, I don't like to work on BMWs. <laughs> Do you think a relationship is too hard for me? Do you think a cash shortage is too hard for me? So... Friend, I want to make a very pointed application. Uh, like the disciples who failed to do, they had the feeding of the 4,000 and feeding of the 5,000 in their rearview mirror. And that should have been enough to convince them. Jesus points to those two events. That should have done it, men. That should have done it. And you've got an event or two that are also behind you where God did something very remarkable 
and you know he did it. I can think of when Christy and I moved uh, to Dallas, Texas, the first uh, month of our marriage. Oh, you wouldn't believe it. It's enough to say God did that. It was crazy. And you need another couple events like that in the rear view so you can point back and say, look, didn't he do that? And didn't he do that? And if you don't have anything like that behind you, well, at least you've got the feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000 you can point to. Look, God did that. You think he could do this? You don't have to be slow to believe. You can put your full weight on him, on Christ and on his word because he will do immeasurably more than all you ask or imagine according to his spirit that's at work within us. Let's pray as we conclude. Thank you, Christ Jesus, that you're so patient with your sheep. We do what your men did all the time. <laughs> I do. We thank you for your previous deliverances, your previous answers to our desperate cries for mercy and help. And you have come through in ways that were beyond imagination. Thank you, Christ Jesus. We are quick to forget and we hear your words do you not remember don't you understand Lord we need help to understand and to remember and please help us to do this so that our confidence can grow so that we can glorify you we don't serve a weak God who, who might show up oh Lord Jesus you're you can provide far more than we need. Help us to trust you. I ask, Savior, in your name, amen.